Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Air Talk here on Laist 89.3. Austin Cross with you in today for Larry Mantle. We are back to our regular schedule today at LAS, but I want to thank you so much for supporting us on Giving Tuesday. You know, we had that $100,000 dollar for dollar match challenge in front of us, and I am happy to say that we met that goal, which not only strengthens our newsroom, but it also means we unlocked 10,000 meals for families in need this season and 10,000 meals for shelter pets, 20,000 meals and all. We so appreciate that love and support. I mean, thank you so much, really. Well, coming up on the program, we're going to take a look at the plight of the eldest child. If you are one, oh, I do not need to tell you about all the extra pressure that can come with that position or, you know, eldest daughters especially. We're going to talk about the effects that this has on young people. Uh, And of course, I want to hear how it's affected you as well. So stick around for that. That's going to be a very good conversation. But we start today with an eye on the L.A. City Council, which is slated to vote today on whether to place a measure on the November ballot that could create an independent commission. This all comes about a year after the City Hall tape scandal, and that audio included City Council members discussing ways to preserve their power through a redistricting process controlled, of course, by them. Joining us to talk about it today, Sarah Sedwani, politics professor at Pomona College and commissioner on the 2020 Citizens Redistricting Commission. Welcome to you, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me, Austin. Also with us, Fernando Guerra, professor of political science and Chicano Latino studies and director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University. Fernando, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, good morning, Austin. Great to hear your voice, but always miss Larry. <laughs> Don't we all? We just always miss Larry. I miss Larry now. Uh, Fernando, just to start us off, though, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus uh, on the Secret City Hall tapes. Of course, a lot of the focus after those tapes came out was on the the racist remarks on those tapes. Uh, but they also caught, as I mentioned, the council members discussing how to draw district boundaries in a way that really maintains their own power. Looking at the year since, how would you characterize the effect that those recordings have had? I think they have changed the narrative of how we look at a lot of processes that occur at uh, local government, including obviously LA City Hall. You obviously had the direct effect of several resignations, and then you've had the direct effect of a new council member being elected and uh, the type of... um, campaigns that we're going to have for the March and uh, November primary, but then also looking to reform Los Angeles. And there have been several reform efforts focused on an independent redistricting commission. Sarah and I are involved in one of those efforts with a variety of different academics, but there's also One LA and Common Cause and many uh, community groups that are very interested in this. And we believe and we want to congratulate the city council for taking this first step, but we think it's only a first step. There are several other reforms that we would suggest. 
Uh, one other thing is while a lot of civic, uh, civically engaged individuals, some of us who get paid to uh, study this are highly focused on this, um, we saw in the 6th district, that is the district that Nuri Martinez held right. before she resigned, there was a special election with Imelda Padilla being elected. The turnout was only 13%. So to say that those leaked audio tapes and this process produced a great mobilization is just not the case, especially mm. in the 6th district. And we also, in our own research at the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University, uh, uh, more than half the individuals were not actively aware or actively following uh, uh, the um, what, what was happening at City Hall regarding those leaked tapes. It's so important that you bring that up. I think that we take, uh, I mean, I personally maybe take for granted that given the space that I'm in every single day, of course, the LAist listeners and readers who stay up on the news and, you know, they devour these headlines almost faster than I do. Um, it, it's, you know, it's sometimes easy to forget that, you know, people also have lives, you know, not everybody can stay up on these stories. And uh, frankly, there was a lot about it, especially when it got to uh, the sort of plotting that those tapes captured of, you know, deciding who should get what. Uh, that might be lost on a lot of people. Frankly, it kind of gets into a level of, uh, you know, local government that sometimes we were maybe taught in high school and that we've forgotten about since. Uh, so it's very important for you to bring that up. Uh, Sarah Sedwani, is there anything that you would add to what Fernando said? It's just about the effect of those tapes, obviously not on mobilizing voters, uh, clearly, but uh, on the effect that we've seen since they've come out. Yeah, I think Fernando is absolutely right in, in that assessment that it hasn't had that kind of mobilizing effect broadly. And I think, Austin, one of the pieces that you pick up on is something I think a whole lot about is kind of the media frenzy that went around with these tapes. And certainly we did see mobilizations from uh, from organizers and folks who who were were broadly organized. Um, but, you know, in much of our work, we've conducted focus groups. We have a survey that we'll be releasing in the coming weeks. Um, this is true across the board that that and we've seen this even in many of the corruption scandals as well that, that have rocked the city council. Uh, we see this flurry of activity around them. But when we go out and talk to voters, many are unaware um, of, of, of what's happening in city council. And many people feel disconnected and a lack of trust in city council, in part stemming from these, these ongoing corruption violations and scandals. But also that is the general mood that we're seeing in the United States today. And I think that's trickling down uh, to local government as well. But I think that, you know, to, to Fernando's point about needing to do more, just to bring it back to this redistricting motion, you know, this is an incredible first step. But given that this is to some extent a political moment, there's much more to be done to earn that trust back, to bring back trust in government um, that, that, that the city council can and should be doing. Certainly there have been a host of conversations, not only from our academic group, but also from many of these community groups around council expansion and bringing government closer to the people around ethics reforms and ensuring uh, that we, we have elected officials who are living up to the ethical norms uh, and standards that, that we set uh, as voters. Yeah, I, mean, I was just looking into the report that you released, I believe, in June from the L.A. Governance Reform Project, and all of that is here from the council size uh, to ethics reform. And that's actually some of the things I wanted to ask you about. 
Just to remind folks who might be just joining us, though, uh, we are talking about LA's Independent Redistricting Commission proposal that the City Council uh, will be voting on today. Uh, Sarah Sedwani is with me, professor at Pomona College, also with me, Fernando Guerra at Loyola Marymount University. Sarah, can you just take us through some of the details of this propo- uh, proposal, pardon me, and what would be different if it did come to pass? Yeah, you know, what this city currently has on the books in the charter of the city, city of Los Angeles, is what we would call in political science a political commission. Um, the commission, as as present, as, as was the case in 2020, were appointees of members of the city council and therefore really there to do their bidding. Um, this proposal would overhaul that model and develop something much more akin to the state's independent redistricting commission, which I had the privilege of serving on, Mm -hmm. which really preserves that independence and creates a body of commissioners that is quite separate uh, and independent from the the council. Uh, The current commission structure that is on the books, that political commission. Um, At the end of the day, the city council itself can throw out the maps and redraw them however they want. And that's what we heard in those those leaked recordings is is they're strategizing about how they were going to redraw lines. In an independent commission, uh, the commissioners are selected through a fair and independent and transparent process. Uh, They develop those lines independent and separate from from the the city council. And there is very strong language, in fact, stronger language in this proposal than what exists at the state level about having no ex parte communications with the council. And at the end of the day, the commission itself approves those maps and they go into law. So the council would never touch those maps at all. And that is largely based on the model that that's that uh, exists at this at the state level. And that's what they're proposing here with some fine tune adjustments to make this a commission that is more reflective of the diversity of Los Angeles and as, as well as some of the challenges that Los Angeles has faced. Uh, Fernando Guerra at Loyola Marymount University, I understand that uh, city elected officials, uh, commissioners, lobbyists would be prohibited from serving on that commission. Uh, But I also hear that it's been proposed that that commission would be in charge of divvying up lucrative assets uh, within communities, colleges, major businesses. Could you just give us a reminder of why that is so important? I believe that was at the heart of some of the tape scandal as well. Yes, it was. And I will have to say that I completely disagree with that narrative that these economic assets can be divvied up by council district. Hmm. In other words, let's talk about USC, which was a big debate whether it should be in the 8th or in the ninth district. The idea that USC being in one district or the other would then only give resources to that district, would only hire people from that district, would only give contracts to people from that district, would only recruit students in high schools from that district is ludicrous. Um, it's, it had nothing to do with whether or not these cultural or economic assets would service the district, because most of these institutions, like USC, Loyola Marymount, we see ourselves as citywide, regionwide. And, um, and, and the issue there really is about council members wanting that asset and that asset, meaning a developer, meaning a, a an institution with resources, would have to curry favor to that particular council member 
and therefore they would have influence. So it's not about the people. It's not about the citizens or the residents of the district taking advantage of the assets. It's about the elected official. And so this uh, idea that assets need to be divided along uh, district lines to me is a total red herring that elected officials are using so that they can control assets themselves for themselves, not for their citizens. Now, I should mention, I believe this was a proposal that was put forward. It's not what they're voting on today. It was put forward by the Ad Hoc Committee on Governance Correct. Reform. Um, but I have not yet heard that take. And so it's uh, it's very fascinating to me. There, there, there is absolutely no academic research, none whatsoever, that shows that if you have an acid in your district, your district would disproportionately uh, receive benefits. Uh, the, you could imagine that, yes, the closer you live to an economic asset, the more likely you are going to be hired there because you would apply. The closer you live to an economic asset, you're going to be impacted by traffic, et cetera. And of course, you would want to uh, um, have some say in that. I, I get that aspect of it, but that could be done irrespective of whether it's in your district or not. I mean, it's interesting. I'm curious if this is something that uh, has shown up uh, when you were, of course, part of that academic LA governance reform project, or if this is something that uh, maybe needs to be discussed, you know, within uh, by city leaders at a later point. Yeah, I think it's going to be discussed today because there is a proposal to think about those assets and how you would, you know, it, that you should incorporate this discussion into. Uh, the uh, appointments and um, the when when you draw the lines, and so it will be discussed. I just again am totally. I, first of all, what are the metrics and how would that work? Um, and I, I'll I'll do. I will say that I'm speaking on my behalf, not on mm -hmm. behalf of the uh, um, uh, redistricting group of academics. This is my own opinion, but I'll re defer to Sarah to elaborate further. Yeah, Sarah, I heard you wanted to chime in there, please. Yeah, I just wanted to add, again, this wasn't a piece of our, our recommendations on the LA reform project, but I completely agree with Fernando. Um, you know, as it stands, there is language already in the state's constitution about communities of interest as it relates to redistricting. And that could, is broadly defined by social or economic factors. So there's already language that is existent in the law in which a commission could, if they chose to do so, uh, be thinking about assets, there is absolutely no reason. Uh, there is no real reason in terms of representation of the of the people why uh, a commission should be forced to think about these assets. Um, in many instances, it would run counter to potentially Voting Rights Act claims. It could run counter to maintaining city or, or even like neighborhood boundary districts to some extent. Um, and this is really a, an interest of the politicians, not so much of the people. At the state commission, we received a lot of testimony right at the end, right? After we had most of our lines pretty much complete, suddenly we had this flurry of people calling in saying, hey, we want LAX airport. We want this mall wow. put into our district. We want Cal State LA put into our district. You know, a lot of that is, is purely political. Um, and I would definitely uh, encourage any future commissioners to discard a lot of that 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 
uh, testimony because it has very little to do with actual representation and far more to do with the interests of the politicians themselves. I think we certainly understand now why you said it, uh, at the beginning of this conversation that this is still just the beginning. It sounds like there's a lot more that needs to be uh, discussed and decided. That's Sarah Sedwani, politics professor at Pomona College and commissioner on the 2020 Citizens Redistricting Commission. We also heard from Fernando Guerra, professor of political science, Chicano Latino studies, and director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University. My thanks to you both for coming on. We were, of course, talking today about the L.A. City Council expected to vote today on whether to place a measure on the November ballot that could create an independent commission. Of course, they would be in charge of redrawing voting districts that really reflect population changes in the city. Our Frank Stoltz is on that story. I understand he's actually uh, covering it right now downtown. We will hear more updates from him throughout the day here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mantle. When we come back, do eldest children have it the hardest? I'm going to want to hear from you on this one. Stick around back in 60 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. Austin Cross with you in for Larry Mantle today. I hope he's having a great day wherever our guy Larry is. Now, this one goes out to the one I love. Now, this one goes out to all the people who grew up with siblings. Sorry, only children. But if you did have brothers or sisters growing up like I did, chances are you've had a conversation or two in your life about how your birth order has influenced your personality. So maybe as the eldest child, you are higher achieving than your siblings. I'll give you a second to think about that one. Maybe, uh, just maybe as a middle child, close to middle child like me, you're more attention seeking. I don't know how that bodes. I'm on radio right now. But if you are the baby, maybe you're constantly comparing yourself to your older sibs. So there's a lot to be said about how your birth order might actually affect your development. But today, we want to put a focus on the eldest children because studies show they do tend to be saddled with a lot more pressure and responsibility in the family, especially, I got to underline this one a bunch, especially oldest daughters. Um, And this is where I put it out to you. If you are an eldest sibling in your family. Let's start with daughters. If you're the eldest female, how do you navigate the responsibility and pressure of that job uh, if it still continues? I mean, my understanding is that, of course, growing up, you had a lot of maybe extra parental 
uh, supervision, a lot of them uh, maybe scrutinizing your report card extra hard. Uh, but that doesn't always end when you move out of the house. So if you are an oldest daughter, I would love to hear from you about maybe what you experienced in your childhood uh, compared to your younger siblings and maybe how that continues to play out now, how that's affected your personality. Maybe if there's a personality trait that you have uh, that you can just point to it and say, oh, yeah, that came about because I was in charge of a lot. 866-893-5722 is our number. 866-893-5722. There's also atcomments at laist.com. If you want to reach out there, you just want to tell us where you are. First name so we can give you some cred and where you are. But we do have a line open for you today. So if you're sitting uh, out there, you're thinking about it, you're maybe on a fence, I would love to hear from you. 866-893-5722. With me today is Susan McHale, a recently retired professor of human development and family studies at Penn State University. Uh, Professor McHale, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Well, Professor McHale, I want to start with eldest daughters in particular, because that is kind of what started this conversation for us on the Air Talk team and made us decide to run with this chat. Uh, I, I've seen it called eldest daughter syndrome before, but how would you describe some of the maybe extra responsibilities and pressures that young women in particular often face when they're the oldest of the kids? Well, yeah, I mean, there is some research on that, and it tends to focus on their family responsibilities, uh, particularly housework and sibling caregiving. Uh, in terms of uh, responsibilities outside the home, that's not necessarily a girl thing. So older brothers may have pressures to be good at sports or even to excel at school, depending on what the family values. It's really the interior of the families where girls have this kind of extra pressure. So, I mean, it sounds like to me that there's gender dynamics at play in this then, right? Totally. So so the gender yeah. dynamics here, I wonder, for example, maybe if we would see those pressures uh, on the eldest daughter show up more, maybe if uh, the family holds closer to what you know we might know as traditional values or maybe if there's a cultural difference. Is that something that you've seen at all in your research? Sure. Um, in, in families that have strong familism values and ha are more uh, traditional in terms of gender roles, uh, these expectations for girls' caregiving roles, we also call them kin-keeping roles, are um, you know even more pronounced. Uh, I don't want to say that boys are off the hook. I mean, there are certainly cultures where the firstborn son has substantial responsibility for the family, for the parents when they're old, for financial issues. Um, oh. So I, it, it really depends on the domain, but uh, caregiving, uh, sibling um, roles in families are tend to be highly gendered. So what happens when there's not a sibling of the other sex in the family, uh, then, you know, these things can't happen. And it may be that one of the brothers takes on the role of family caregiver, or mm. one of the sisters takes on the role of achiever. It's not a, a given that your birth order or your sex will determine your outcomes. The larger context of the family really matters a lot. 
866-893-5722 is our number. Talking right now with Susan McHale, Distinguished Professor of Human Development and Family Studies at Penn State University about the plight of the eldest daughter. I think it really came into focus for me personally when I saw the movie Encanto uh, a couple years ago. I uh, watched it with my wife. Uh, my wife cried during the pressure song. Uh, and then I cried because I think for the first time I kind of understood so much about uh, everything that was uh, weighing on her. 866-893-5722 is our number if you are an eldest daughter and you'd like to share your experience. Jenny is calling us from Burbank. Jenny, how do you think your life was different from your siblings? Hi. So I am the oldest daughter of four girls, and I definitely had a much more strict upbringing than my sisters. Mm. To, uh, the best comparison is my curfew senior year was 11 p.m., and my sister's curfew didn't exist. She could go <laughs> to her boyfriend in college. Um, and now I definitely feel like I get a little bit more attention from my mother in terms of, like, how's work going? How's, you know, your love life going? Mm. Just to almost make up for the fact that I was more of the caregiver, Um when I was younger and now she's like, oh, you're you're more than just a caregiver. You're also a human. I mean, I know that it could cause so much tension, though, if, you know, you feel like all the rules apply to you, but none of them apply to your younger siblings. Uh, what's your relationship with your sisters like now? We've definitely had a lot of conversations about this. Um, the the tensions are, are there, but it's more of an underlying joke. Mm. Um about you know our different upbringings but we have a great relationship we just had to have a lot of discussions after we all grew up a little bit and and got out of the house that's jenny and burbank jenny thank you so much for calling and sharing i think that just kind of what goes hand in hand with these sorts of sibling dynamics is the younger children definitely don't want to hear about it (laughs) for some reason i just feel like that's kind of the norm uh in these situations uh, let's talk to Patricia. Patricia is calling us from Rolling Hills Estates. I understand that you have two younger brothers. Talk to me about the pressure that you were feeling. Oh yes, um, I, I had. It's a different dynamic because it, they weren't sisters, as we, you guys were discussing earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mother worked, um, and so did my dad. So I had to take on a lot of the household responsibilities, and they were at work. And I think it helped me to become a um, more versatile person and, and a better leader. Um, but my brothers would beat each other up all the time. And so I had to, I had to break up, you know, the fights and stuff like that all the time when I was. So I think, I think you get a little bit more tough. Um, but you do have all uh, additional responsibilities. And it's like, oh, you're the daughter, therefore you're going to cook. Mm. and um, you're going to clean and you're going to do all this stuff. And, and um, when my parents um, got older, I was responsible for their caregiving and, um, you know, just making sure everything was paid. And then I, I was named sole trustee of their trust when they um, passed away. So it's something that never ends. I mean, I have a wonderful relationship with my brothers to this day and, and fondly, fond memories of my, my parents. Um, but I think it makes you into a stronger person if you can stand it. <laughs> I mean, Patricia, I'm just really curious uh, very quickly if um, I know that some for people it can be difficult when you have all that pressure. Did you ever receive the recognition that you were uh, the person who was, you know, taking care of everybody? Do your brothers 
you know, at least say thank you at all? I'm kind of, kind of curious. Um, not, you know, not really, but, hmm. you know, I would be in the ER with my dad or something like that all day long, and I would just call one of my brothers and go, okay, it's your turn. Get over oh. here. I'm fried right now. And so they were, you know, cooperative in that manner. Um, and then another interesting thing is I worked with my mom when I got out of college. We were both accountants. And so she was toughest on me at work, you know, in, in comparison with all the other employees. And then I would hear from other people how she praised me and how proud she was of me and all this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's that, you know, the, the great generation, that mm. people that depression and had that kind of upbringing, you know, poverty. Um, it, it's just a whole interesting dynamic to see how they, they go around the praise, but you know that they love you. It's not mm. that I didn't ever feel loved. It was just, it, it was really weird. It was a higher expectation. That's Patricia in Rolling Hills Estates. Patricia, thank you so much for calling and sharing. I should also mention we have Susan McHale on the line. Susan, did you want to chime in? No, I just think it's you're confirming the kinds of findings that we that we see in the research that this you know role, this sibling role, can can really be lifelong. Talking right now with Susan McHale, uh, who is a distinguished professor of human development and family studies at Penn State University. This is a very popular topic, actually. Um, a lot of folks actually want to weigh in on this one. Christy is calling us from North Hills. And Christy, I understand that you are the oldest of five girls. Tell us about your situation. Yeah, so I'm the oldest of five. Um, so I was born in 69, and the reason I just mentioned that is because that was before the age of, like, digital communication. Mm. So both my parents are deaf, and so I was, in addition to being the caretaker, was the interpreter. Mm. Um, I think in a lot of ways that made me much more, um, I, you know, I, like I was buying cars, buying houses at a very young age, so that's something that comes very easy to me now and has made me probably more financially successful um, in my older age. Um, I don't care for my parents now, but Mm. definitely like my sisters do look at me to, you know, I take care of all the holidays. If something needs to be, you know, they're the one that I'm the one they look to, to, you know, when those issues, um, but they don't always want my opinion. <laughs> well, I mean, are you happy to be the one that takes on that extra work today, the planning of holidays and things like that? Um, you know, I don't mind. We don't have our own kids, my husband and I. And so we bought a large house with the intention of having, you know, his family and our family here. We wanted it to be like, you know, the extended family home. Um, and it definitely has done that. But, you know, sometimes you get overwhelmed and it's tiring. Thank you so much for calling us. That's Christy in North Hills. I want to come back to Susan McHale at uh, Penn State University. You said a lot of these calls uh, have confirmed a lot of your research. I'm curious, also based on your research, though, let's say if an older sibling leaves home, do we see instances of the parental pressure then kind of going to the next level, uh, <laughs> to the, the next oldest child? Maybe they start to feel some of that as well. Exactly. We actually did a, a study of this um, and interviewed kids about what it's like after their older sibling leaves home. And as one of the siblings pointed out, the spotlight turned on her. Uh, up mm. until this time, the parents were really focused on the firstborn's achievements and what they were going to do and all these transitions that were in store. 
And once that firstborn is away, there's no one to protect you. <laughs> the spotlight's on you. So yeah, the, the responsibilities and the expectations and the just the observations of parents about how you're behaving and what you're up to become more pronounced. Talking right now. At least now. in our study. Talking right now about the uh, sometimes the struggle, sometimes the plight of the eldest daughters, eldest siblings in uh, family relationships. Val is calling us from La Habra. Uh, Val, what's your story? Hi, I'm excited to be here. I am the firstborn daughter of a single refugee household. Oh. So um, that laid a lot of responsibility on me growing up. I do have a younger sister uh, that it was my responsibility to make sure that she was taken care of uh, as we were growing up, as my mom was the only earner in our family, so she was often working. So that means that I was at home, I was having to pick up things. We did have my grandmother with me, but she only spoke Spanish. So anytime anything came up to having to translate anything, school kind of things, I was, as a child, the one who not only had to take care of my sister, but I was also translating for for my family. Um, when I was like 16, I got my first job, and my mother was able to give me her older car with the caveat that I'm now responsible for taking my siblings, my siblings to school and my grandmother to her doctor appointments if she needed or whatnot. Um, even to this day, I'm still responsible for a lot of our own family gatherings. I'm the organizer of the family. Um, usually, if somebody wants to plan something, I, I'm the one that gets spoken to and gets asked about everybody else. Like, my mom, instead of asking my siblings, will ask me, like, do you know what's going on with so-and-so? Um, and I, I still take care of my grandmother's finances. Um, even though she, my mother is alive and able to, but she comes to me uh, to help organize her finances to this day. So I, as a, as a child, had to take on a lot of translating just because I was, uh, you know, my my grandmother didn't speak English at home and had to fill out all the forms and such. And to this day, still, still doing that. Even though I live outside of the house and I have my own household um, and a newborn, for, wow. for example, for Thanksgiving, I was planning Thanksgiving with a newborn and a, and a three-year-old at home. Oh, my gosh. So, that's, that's so much to have to shoulder, Val, uh, a newborn and a three-year-old uh, and still in charge of so much of the family. Thank you so much for giving us a call, Val. Uh, I want to get in one more uh, quick call from, uh, let's go to Allie in Mid-City. Um, Allie, what was your situation like? Hi. Um, yeah. So my dad passed away suddenly about eight years ago. Mm. He was 59 years old, pretty young. Um, and my mom had no idea how to handle finances, how to handle her life, pay bills, basically live life without my dad. So I was in charge of not only scheduling the service when he passed, but also teaching her how to survive without him. Um, and I have two younger siblings as well who also needed my support. So all these years later, I'm continuing to teach her and help her and walk her through it. And she's pretty young. She's 62. So she's got quite a few years left of being on her own. Um, but it has been really tough. It's a lot of uh, emotional weight to take on. I'm just curious, Ali, really quickly before we have to break here, but I mean, what, what you make of your situation, because sometimes, you know, people are raised to be, you know, the eldest child with all these responsibilities. Sometimes you're thrust into situations that you never thought that you would be in, but yet you have to be the one to take up the reins. Um, how do you feel about this responsibility that is upon you now? 
Well, I'd always been the one that sort of shouldered a lot of, of the responsibility in the family. So I was, you know, kind of prepared to, to handle something like this. But again, my dad passing so young and unexpectedly, mm. you kind of get thrown into it and just have to deal with it. Um, but it was definitely something that I was preparing myself my entire life to deal with, but maybe not so soon. <laughs> That's Allie in Mid-City, and I'm so sorry to hear that too, Allie, but Allie in Mid-City giving us a call. We've been talking about uh, the challenges of being an oldest daughter here on LAS 89.3. We've also been talking with Susan McHale, Distinguished Professor of Human Development and Family Studies at Penn State University. She retired last year. Lauren, my apologies uh, for not being able to get to you, but I understand that you always, you still help your younger siblings navigate their lives. Uh, you also mentioned you were the first uh, child to disappoint your parents. I wish I could have asked you about that, but I so appreciate uh, people who are willing to call in and share uh, their experiences. I know that it can be a very personal thing, uh, but I just know for every person that we heard from today, there's probably 10 more people who are, are going through something similar. So I so appreciate that. This is Air Talk. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mantle. When we come back, we are going to talk about Holiday commercials, what makes a memorable holiday commercial? Of course, I'm going to want to hear what commercial lives rent-free in your mind, too. We are back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. So tell me if you remember this one. What image comes to mind right now? Does your mouth like just kind of start watering a little bit because you're thinking of the Hershey's Kisses in this ad? <laughs> that is a holiday advertisement that's been running for decades. It's the little kisses and their bells. You probably know it. I've been watching it, I think, for at least 20 25 years now. So it's it's been out for a minute. This is Air Talk on LAS 89.3, by the way. Austin Cross with you uh, in today for Larry Mantle. Always a pleasure. Uh, you know that with every holiday season comes the seasonal advertisements. They also seem to start earlier and earlier every year. That's another conversation. But as we see every year, folks are getting pulled in all directions, pretty much from Thanksgiving to Giving Tuesday. So what leads consumers to make their purchase on that maybe a decorative holiday knickknack or a Christmas treat or, you know, check out a 24-hour movie marathon. Let's talk about that. And helping us answer what makes for a memorable holiday commercial today is Christopher Chavez, professor of advertising uh, and also the director of the Center for Latino Latina Latin American Studies at the University of Oregon. Christopher, thank you so much for coming on. 
Thank you for having me. Also with us, Charles Lindsay, Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Buffalo. Charles, thank you so much for coming on as well. My pleasure. Uh, before we dive in, I want to listen to one more holiday commercial. This is one for Cheerios, Honey Nut Cheerios uh, specifically. Uh, and I, I had completely forgotten about it until uh, one of our producers played it for me yesterday, and it really dusted off a memory in my mind. Let's take a quick listen to that one. The taste of nuts and honey, Mr. Scrooge. Ah! <laughs> Better things to do. But Mr. Scrooge, Honey Nut Cheerios, it's Christmas. My customary gruel will suffice. Thank you. Yeah, but Honey Nut Cheerios blends golden honey and crunchy nuts. I said, did you say honey and nuts? <laughs> and then he's changed. Merry Christmas, Mr. Scrooge. Oh, my gosh. Just charming. Uh, Professor Chavez, I really want to start uh, with you on this one, but... Come holiday season, a lot of companies are competing for our attention. Uh, is the goal with these ads really just to stand out in this season? Yeah, I think that's a huge goal. I mean, as you mentioned in your introduction, it's starting earlier and earlier. Everybody's trying to compete in a very crowded marketplace. And so I think just people want to do it stronger, better, more consistent. Uh, I think they're just trying to fight for oxygen in the room. Mm, right. I think the first one that I saw trying to think maybe it was a Verizon commercial it was like this one where a choir a little some carolers carolers showed up to the door of this couple and they were trying to sing uh, to the wife to, to buy the husband an iPhone I think that was the first one I saw um, maybe about three weeks ago um, and I guess what comes hand in hand with an American Christmas anyway is this idea that consumption buying things is uh, is also part of the ritual. It almost has become the holiday. I know that there's uh, there's the war on Christmas crowd who have thoughts about it. You know, you're forgetting about the reason of the season. I get that. But I, I almost feel like in America, though, it's kind of largely gotten replaced by this consumption part, right? I'm thinking of like Coca-Cola and the, the white polar bear and how those just symbolize the holiday season for us now, right? Right. I think you're absolutely correct. You know, this, these may have started off as religious observations, but they're really now owed to consumption, uh, where the product itself becomes the centerpiece of, of human love and interaction. And it's almost to the point where it's almost impossible not to participate in this ritual. There's such a tremendous amount of, of you know, pressure to participate, you know, whether it's buying the decorations for the house or buying the uh, food for the holiday dinner. Uh, wearing the right clothing, those Christmas sweaters for uh, for going out, uh, not to mention the gifts that we exchange that have now become such the centerpiece of, of this entire ritual. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a huge moment in retail, uh, particularly if you're in automotive or if you're technology or good old-fashioned apparel. Um, all of them seem like there's money to be made in this process. For folks listening in, if there's a holiday ad of old that you remember that just lives in your brain, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Maybe it's living in mind, too, and you'll help awaken it. 866-893-5722 is our number. Again, that's 866-893-5722. Uh, Charles Lindsay, professor of marketing at the University of Buffalo. I'm curious, with so much coming at them or coming at us, because I am them, how do customers, consumers, people us how do we decide what to buy at this time of year is it an emotional thing is it a brand loyalty thing what what is it yeah great question austin and to christopher's uh, uh earlier comment uh, completely agree it's really 
uh, about standing out. Uh, it's such a noisy, cluttered environment and so much coming at us uh, to, to your uh, earlier comment as well, Austin. And, and I think during the holidays, especially, I think establishing an emotional connection uh, and, uh, and, and, an emotional connection in a way that's relevant uh, for the brand in question is always important. Uh, emotion uh, drives so much in terms of human behavior, uh, but especially around the holidays. Uh, togetherness, family, the spirit of giving, so on and so forth. When I think of so many of my favorite uh, holiday and Christmas ads, uh, those themes emerge. I mean, is it a little bit uncomfortable, though, um, Charles, that some of these ads, they, they do play on those themes. They kind of take organic human uh, values, uh, you know, tenets of maybe a good life, you know, loving the people, taking care of the people around you. And they also kind of use it to sell you something kind of right in the middle of your emotional journey. Uh, does it ever feel a bit strange to you when you're watching these? I think it does for me. Yeah, and I think uh, good, great point, and and I think it does for for uh, I would think many many of us, uh, and and if, if perhaps a majority of, of consumers, uh, it has uh, occurred to them over the years, uh, and it really speaks to that blending, mm -hmm. and, and I think Christopher mentioned it. It it really you know obviously the origins are religious in nature, but uh, uh, now it's and I, I think you mentioned this earlier, Austin, or you referenced this. Now it's kind of taken off a taken on a on a life of its own uh, in terms of uh, uh, consumption and gift giving and 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 so on and so forth. And 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 so uh, yeah yeah it, it it certainly can be a, a bit strange, a bit awkward, and and I think that's why it's really important for brands to. Um, when you when they are working with let's say their ad agencies to to make sure that uh, the the Christmas ad the holiday ad uh, is uh, is on brand it's authentic it's authentic to the the brand itself I'm thinking for for instance of the um, the the Folgers ad uh, that uh, um, mm. Yeah, well received and and pretty famous uh, holiday ad where the college student comes home and brews right. uh, a pot of uh, Folgers to wake up uh, the family on Christmas morning and 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 so uh, where the protagonists in the ad are using the brand in our in an organic or a natural way, uh, while at the same time. Um, it, it, it does evoke, it does evoke uh, the heartstrings, it does evoke nostalgia, it does establish an emotional connection, but the brand isn't, uh, isn't really doing cartwheels to do that. It's just uh, showing protagonists actually using the brand in an organic, natural way that just happens to then uh, create uh, an emotional connection. Uh, with consumers. It's so funny that you mentioned that we actually have that ad on hand. It came out in 2009. Let's let's take a listen to it now that you've primed us for it. Yeah. I must have the wrong house. Sister. <laughs> oh, I missed you so much. They waited up all night for you, you know. It's a long way from West Africa. Oh, real coffee. Here. I brought you something from far away. <laughs> really? Oh. Hey, 
are you doing? You're my present this year. The best part of waking up is folders in your <laughs> Oh, she puts a bow on him. That's what our, my producer just says in that image. She says, you're my present. She puts a bow on him. I mean, I have to say like that one, <laughs> that's equal part like heartwarming. And also like if anybody's read uh, some of the discussions about this particular commercial online, it also has some... Uh, an interesting level of discomfort about just how close um, that relationship is. But let me just reset everything right now. We were talking about the holiday commercials that uh, stick out, really what makes a great one. 866-893-5722 is our number. If there is one that is living in your brain and has for a number of years. Michael is calling us from Silmar. And Michael, I understand that what stands out to you, what you remember uh, is a Payless commercial, but it was from, from way back when it was Fred Myers. Is that correct? It wasn't Fred Meyer. It was Payless still. It was. But it was like a big Target store, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And what was it about the commercial that you remember? It's the jingle. It's the sweetness of the jingle that just kills me and lives in my head rent-free forever. Can you sing the jingle for us, Michael? Are you, are you ready? Yeah, man. Merry Christmas from Payless. Merry Christmas. Sing, boy. <laughs> Michael and Silmar, you might be our first call uh, song, a song call here on uh, Air Talk. And yeah, that is a bop. This is my head red frame. <laughs> I almost wanted to take out the tambourine and join you on that one. Merry Christmas. Come on. Michael and Silmar, thank you so much for giving us a call, Michael. 866-893-5722. If there's a commercial that uh, you remember that still stands out to you. I want to get in one more uh, semi-commercial sound clip. It's not actually a commercial, but it's a parody of a commercial. I think it also helps prime us for some questions about whether the advertising uh, that we see is uh, realistic. But this is an SNL skit uh, released in December of 2020. And I think that you'll know what they're doing here uh, after just a few seconds. Let's listen to that one. Hey, Matt, I think there might be one more gift for your mom right there. It hasn't been a normal year, so this Christmas, get her something extraordinary during the Lexus December to Remember sales event. Nathan, you didn't. With flexible financing and 0% APR, there's never been a better time to buy or lease a new Lexus. Merry Christmas, baby. Are you kidding me, Nathan? Did you seriously buy a car without asking me? Well... Because for Christmas... This is a major purchase! Right? But it, it was a December to remember. It's a Lexus! We don't have the money for this, Nathan! We don't? No, we don't! Your father doesn't... Your father hasn't worked since last March. What? Yeah, COVID has hit a lot of people hard, and I'm no exception. Nathan, you got fired in March 2019. Okay, this, this really goes places here, but this December to Remember skit, of course, pokes fun at Lexus's uh, December to Remember. I, I get it. There are probably some couples where a partner might actually make a, a splurge purchase without mentioning to their partner. But Christopher Chavez, uh, professor of advertising at the University of Oregon, are there times like these when maybe the commercials are encouraging some bad behavior on our part? Because I don't imagine that everybody should go out and make a $60,000 purchase. And before you answer, I'll say we've got about a minute left in this conversation. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, in the process of selling these things with goodwill and cheer and family, we lose track of the fact that we're actually selling products. And they have environmental implications. They have financial implications. So 
you know, these are material objects. They take up resources. They're encased in packaging. Uh, so they lead to obvious sustainability issues, uh, not to mention the travel that's involved in creating them. Um, but there's also, you know, as the alludes to the financial implications, you can almost lose sight of the fact that there's, you know, there's an economic reality for people, that there is a cost of living crisis, that people go into debt buying these things. And so all of that gets obscured um, in all of this, um, this messaging of, of family and togetherness and goodwill. We just lose sight of that fact. It's kind of like uh, Don Draper says in Mad Men, if you don't like what they're saying, change the conversation like that first episode. Or we're not going to talk about how cigarettes are bad. We're just going to say they're toasted. It just changes the conversation a little bit. Um, I can imagine that's happening a lot with these holiday ads. I'm Austin Cross. This is Air Talk. I have loved this conversation. Christopher Chavez, professor of advertising at the University of Oregon. Charles Lindsay at the University of Buffalo. We have more Air Talk coming up next hour. Santa, tell me you're going to stick around after this. It's Air Talk. Here on LAist 89.3, Austin Cross with you, filling in for Larry Mantle today. I hope he's having a great day wherever he is. He will be back with you tomorrow, though. Coming up, we're going to take a look at dad brain. I call it dad brain. It's some new research that looks at the bond between fathers and their children when they get enough time to bond with their new baby. I'm going to tell you the word neuroplasticity is going to come up. That research is just fascinating. And of course, I'm going to want to hear from dads, both new and old. That's coming up in just a few minutes. But we start this hour with an important question. Is there a mental health crisis among restaurant workers? Now, if you've spent any time working in a restaurant, then you know that the industry is notoriously tough. You've got demanding customers, late nights, the constant stress of keeping a business with razor-thin margins open. Now, in such a charged environment, staying on top of your mental health, it's difficult. It's no small feat. So today we're going to talk to two chefs about what they're seeing in the industry when it comes to mental health and what restaurants can do about it. Uh, but I also want to hear from you if you work in the restaurant industry, if you yourself uh, have either struggled with or if you've seen other people struggle with their mental health in the industry, in a very demanding industry. Maybe you found something that's worked for you. Maybe you're still looking. We would love to hear from you. 866 866- 8935722 is our number. We do have a line open just for you. 866-893-5722. You can also email us atcomments at laist.com. Just be sure to include your location and your first name. Joining us today are Teresa Montano, chef and owner of Otonio and Highland Park. Hello, Teresa. Hi, good morning. And Teresa joins me in studio. That's so exciting. Also with us, Patrick Mulvaney, chef and owner of Mulvaney's Building and Loan, which is a wonderful nod to the movie It's a Wonderful Life, but it's actually a restaurant in Sacramento. He's also co-founder of I Got Your Back, which is a peer-to-peer support organization that provides mental health resources and support to hospitality industry workers. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, Teresa, I just want to start with you and what you've seen in the industry and your time there, but what are some of the prevailing health issues, mental health issues that have come up? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's just become pretty alarming since COVID. I've had maybe half a dozen employees approach me um, kind of just completely not okay, Um, you know, suicidal, asking for resources, asking to take time off. Um, And then probably another dozen or so just, you know, 
coming to me and ask and asking for you know resources, uh, therapists. Um, but it's it's gotten a lot worse since COVID. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's just this overall uh, insecurity about what's going to happen. Is my job safe? Is my uh, income safe? Um, and so I think that's been a pretty alarming uh, change that I've noticed. Um, but overall, it's it's a it's a hell of an industry. Um, and if you're a young kid trying to make it in a city like Los Angeles, uh, waiting tables, maybe you're going to school full time as well. Uh, the stress of that is is pretty incredible. And I should also mention this kind of suck it up mentality that has existed. Uh, I, I'm sure it still does post pandemic, but. I can't imagine that that would help. It hasn't helped us historically in any industry, but especially one that's so fast paced and so stressful as as the restaurant field. Right. Yeah. I mean, and there's there's a balance there because Mm -hmm. it is a high high intensity, fast pace, you know, got to meet the demands of the guests, um, especially as a chef from a chef perspective. Um, I grew up a competitive athlete, so I'm hardwired for that, you know, <laughs> um, mentality. And I, I've had to soften that for myself right. and understand um, and address the needs of my employees and, and, and lead with compassion in that way. Um, but, you know, you kind of have to be a, a bit of a mama bear. I'm, you know, I kind of refer to myself as a mama bear in the kitchen, but, you know, still a bear. And so, you know, that you still got to get things done and you still have to um, meet those demands. But I think in general, the overall culture of the restaurant industry has stepped back from that mentality in a lot yes. of ways. I mean, I'm so curious. This occurred to me while you were speaking, but I think about uh, sites like Yelp mm-hmm. and how, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a <laughs> server could be having a bad day or mm-hmm. maybe a chef could be having an off day. But it doesn't just live in that day. It doesn't just go away when the customer walks out the door. Mm-hmm. It could live for a very long time on yeah. somebody's review page. Does that ever factor in? Is that ever a thought in your mind during that pressure cycle? Absolutely. And you know what I do for my mental health? I don't read Yelp. You don't do it. You don't do it at all. <laughs> and, you know, my a lot of my, my managers and stuff do, and they'll report, you know, if there's something that, you know, needs to be addressed. But honestly, you know, we can't control what, what the guests do or what my employees do after they leave our doors. You know, mm. we can just do our best while they're while they're with us, you know, in, in, in our presence, in our care. Talking right now about restaurant worker mental health in the restaurant working industry. If you would like to share your experiences with mental health, your own mental health, maybe the mental health of the people that you work with, uh, what you've observed, uh, and what would maybe even make it better, 866-893-5722 is our number, 866-893-5722. I've been talking with Teresa Montano, chef and owner of Otonio in Highland Park. I also want to bring back into this conversation now Patrick Mulvaney, who is a chef and owner of Mulvaney's B&L in Sacramento. Uh, and I understand, Patrick, you did end up co-founding uh, a support organization to help people. And I really loved reading about this. Could you tell us a little bit about what led you to decide, I need to be the one to do something about this? Sure. First, I want to say, Teresa, I love the mother bear, but I'm still a bear. And we'll be <laughs> stealing that and using that frequently in my kitchen. Um, so in 2018, here in Sacramento, we had a hard year. We, we lost 20 people to death by suicide just in our hmm. uh, just in the hospitality industry. We lost about a half a dozen in the first few months of the, of the year. And as chefs and restaurateurs said, what's our responsibility? And to your point, right, just get it done. So we knew there were four answers, right? Go home, get back on the line, do a shot, stop drinking. Mm. None of them were good. 
but we knew there had to be a better way. And for the first time, we started to come together and say, we need help because we're in restaurants. And kind of the world comes to our door and we talk to everybody. Uh, we started talking about it with anyone who would listen, politicians, health care people, academics, and uh, the community really came together and said, let's put something together. Um, while we were waiting for that to happen, we realized one of our friends who was a chef in town had been, he, he was gone. We hadn't seen him in a while. We knew he was having trouble. I called his mother to say, uh, and the family lets me tell the story. I called his mother to say, hey man, where's Noah? And hoping that she stays in rehab with me in Wisconsin. She called back and said, um, I haven't seen him in a year. We think he's living by the river. If you see him, tell him that I love him. Wow. And uh, was by the river and they found him a few weeks later. And it was at the same time that we were starting to have this meeting. We had a meeting planned on the Tuesday. And that weekend, the Friday before, uh, Bourdain died. And so uh, when we came together with with the Leading Lights 15 restaurant tours and Leading Lights of Mental Health in Sacramento, said uh, it, it, it was real, right? Both for Bourdain, for the larger community, but for Noah, who affected all of us in the hospitality community. So we said we have to change, right? And how we change is we, as an industry, say that mental health is important. It's okay not to be okay, mm. but it's also okay for us to help you get better and then to provide peer support, which is the, the doula, the waitress who's a doula, the fuzzy chef, the uh, cranky bartender who you talk to. And so we started putting that together and with the help of smarter people than me, and mostly my wife, we have this, this program now that's peer-to-peer -peer counseling where people have opened up and talked about mental health. Talking right now with Patrick Mulvaney, he is the co-founder of I Got Your Back, which is a peer-to-peer -peer support organization that provides mental health resources and support to hospitality industry workers. Uh, and, and Patrick, thank you for sharing that story. I know it, it probably sounds like it's still very difficult uh, to think about it and to talk about it. Uh, to look at what your organization does now, because I know that they train uh, some mental health people, kind of like a mental health first aid, um, and they, they can be in workplaces. Um, and what I thought was also interesting was what can happen uh, at check-in when a person comes in and they, they punch in. Uh, and they can kind of disclose in a way just their state of mind, uh, their, the state of their mental health kind of when they start a shift. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Sure. So we call it the purple hand, right? I got your back. The symbol is a big purple hand. And so those people who are trained in knowing how to talk about mental health issues are always available. We have a message up on, the, on our seven shifts, right, that lets you know who it is who's working. You come into work, and as you punch in, there's a box. And this is where my wife was brilliant. She said, this will work, but only if we talk about it all the time. She took a cardboard box, put four colors of paper, and drew faces on them. Happy, sad, neutral, and in the weeds. Hmm. And then cut out pieces of paper, and you come in, and you, how are you feeling today? Mental health check, and you just put in your color quick. Don't think about it. So that when we do our lineup, hey, airlist is coming from L.A. today. L.A. list is coming up today, and this is important. Here's the new special. We got prickly pears. There's none of this wine. And here's the temperature of the restaurant, right? Most everybody's happy. There's a couple of angry people, but three of us are in the weeds. What are we going to do to have a successful shift tonight? 
knowing that three of us are hurting. If you are one of the people in the weeds, what can we do to help you? And what are you going to learn tonight going to help you help others next time when you're not in the weeds? And that's it. And then the magic happens, right? As you're buffing glasses or pulling mats or making stocks or picking herbs, it's opened up the ability for a conversation to say, hey, man, you don't look that good. Hey, how are you? And, and people start reaching out. And we realized at that. So at the end of that horrible year here, and again, the families let me tell the story. We had four people die by suicide associated with the restaurant, mm-hmm. a former bartender, former chef, best man at our another bartender's wedding and on Christmas Eve, a waitress who worked for us. And so when we brought, came back together after the Christmas break and I had everyone in the room to say, here's what's happened, right? She's died by suicide. How did it happen? Doesn't matter, right? But, but I want everyone to know and everyone to be together. Then I saw people reaching out and people started leaning in and saying, hey, this one's talking too much. That one's not talking enough. Hey, I didn't see Eric the busboy on Call of Duty after last night, right? And so, so we saw that bringing that awareness in, putting it on the table and saying it was okay to talk gave permission for people to talk and that permission gives you the ability to get better. And then from there we moved out so that our website, I got your back.info now lists some of the resources that are available for mental health so that when you are alone, you can reach out and find professional help. How do you feel like this has changed the workplace, um, Patrick, as far as, uh, you know, kind of going from that suck it up uh, sort of culture before to people being able to lean in, people being able to normalize talking about their state of mind and how they're feeling. Uh, do you feel uh, that overall it's maybe helped take a layer of pressure maybe off the job? I know the pressure is still there uh, and the realities, harsh realities of life can still be there, but maybe uh, the workplace isn't going to be quite as maybe toxic as they used to be. Yeah, I think I think the toxic is a good word, right? So I think it's reduced the toxicity. The pressures haven't gone away, and and the things that are hard haven't gone away. But our ability to talk about them as a team, as and truthfully in Sacramento as an industry, and some folks have told me as a community, have expanded to be able to say, "Hey, I'm having a tough time right now." And it's true. Since we've started this, people take, "I need mental health days off. This is too much for me. I can't do this." Here's what I'm eligible for, which is which is good, right? Teresa, to your point in the past, we would have said, no, this is the job, just do it, get back in there. Right. And now we can say, hey, okay, well, this is the job, and here's how much of the job you can do, and that's good. Thank you. Exactly. But we still need to get the other why of the job done. And so it's it's a reframing from from an owner's point of view, from a chef's point of view but also a reframing from the staff point of view to say, hey, man, this is what you can do. We'll take it. Thank you very much. Right. We appreciate you being part of the team. Let's move forward together. And importantly, again, my wife, who is brilliant, says, <laughs> while it, it is it is not it's OK not to be OK, period. It's it's OK not to be OK, comma. And we want to and can help you get better. 
Talking right now with Patrick Mulvaney. He's a chef and owner of Mulvaney's BNL in Sacramento, but also co-founder of I Got Your Back, which is a support org that provides mental health resources uh, and support to hospitality industry workers. I'm also joined in studio by Teresa Montano, chef and owner of Antonio in Highland Park. You've been listening to all of this. Teresa, what are you thinking right now? Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, Patrick, thank you so much for the work you've done and to really just take action um, because you know, we have to create environments where it is safe. And like you said, um, it's just, uh, there's, there's too many instances where, you know, someone's not okay. Mm. And if you push them, you know, it, it can go uh, a bad way for them. Um, Our industry is, is there's a ton of turnover. Uh, There's a lot of drugs and alcohol. You know, and there's just that slippery slope of, you know, going out every night with your uh, your buddies in the kitchen, you know, and pretty soon you have, you know, a drinking problem. And, you know, uh, just it's it's so it's hard, you know, so having a safe place, I think it's every every chef owner, every owner's responsibility to create Mm -hmm. an environment where it's okay to not be okay and to talk about it. But firstly, just have the um, the openness to your employees. Um, and that's, I think, I'm just, thank you so much, Patrick. It's just, it's just really incredible to hear uh, what you're doing out there. And, you know, I'd love to see some more programs like that pop up for uh, peers in the industry. And not just the employees, but, uh, you know, the, the owners, the chefs, uh, management. It's, it's, um, it's industry-wide. Talking about yeah, it's that. interesting, Teresa. You know, we, we talk about, I'm sorry, we talk about... Uh, how you do it with your staff, but we also have an informal like ownership layer mm-hmm. of conversations where we do check-ins on a regular basis mm-hmm. to see how chefs are working and check in and make sure that everybody's supported. That's excellent. We've been talking about mental health among restaurant workers. We just heard there from Patrick Mulvaney. He is a chef and owner of Mulvaney's BNL. That's a restaurant in Sacramento. Also co-founder of I Got Your Back, which is a peer-to-peer support organization that provides mental health resources and support to hospitality industry workers. Uh, it sounds so important uh, what you're doing. Even our producer, Lindsay, says, shout out to this dude's wife. She does sound brilliant. So uh, thank you to you and your wife for your work in this area. And I also want to thank Teresa Montano, chef and owner of Otonio and Highland Park, for coming out, sharing her experiences. I would love for you to come back again. Thank you so much. Thanks for thanks for talking about this. It's super important. Yeah. And, um, you know, love to be back. Thank you so much again. I look forward to it. We are back in 60 seconds on Airtime. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mantle. Today, LAist is launching an episode of a new four-part series from Imperfect Paradise. That is our, our pod. It's really good. Imperfect Paradise, the castle. It takes you inside the world of LA's iconic magic castle. You might have been. But it's through the lens of Carly Usedin a queer hobbyist magician who dreamt of making the club a more inclusive space. And I believe that we might have a clip of Carly kind of explaining some of their approach, some of their thoughts as we head into this. If you say magician, you get a very specific image in your head. It's probably an older, cis, white, heterosexual man because that has long been the archetype of the magician in American popular culture. And at the time, before I came out as trans, I was identifying as a woman, my gender assigned at birth. So I was like, I'm going to be this like younger woman person that goes in there. I'm like in my early 30s. I'm queer. I'm like, they're not going to know what to do with me. So there was also this part of like, I'm going to get in there, you know, because it's a space that's clearly not meant for me. It's got to hook you already. New episodes drop every Wednesday. It's available wherever you get your pods. You can also hear it Sundays at 7 p.m. here on LAist 89.3. But I have the reporter of this series, LAist senior producer Natalie Chudnovsky, here with me to talk about it. Welcome, Natalie. Hey, Austin. I should mention for AirTalk listeners, longtime AirTalk listeners, you might recognize Natalie's name. And Natalie, you used to be a producer on yeah. this show. Oh, my God. Feels very transgressive to be in the studio and on the control room. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you are here, though, uh, and I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast so far. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. For those of us who aren't familiar, can you tell us a bit about the Magic Castle? Yeah, the Magic Castle is a members-only club for magicians in Hollywood. It's on Franklin Avenue. It literally looks like a castle out of a Disney movie. And to get in, you have to, you have to either be a member or get an invitation from a member. So for the general public, it has kind of a mystique. And to go, it's kind of an exclusive, coveted experience where you dress up. They have a very strict dress code. And you go and watch high-caliber performance magic in this really immersive space that kind of looks like a cross between like an Ivy League lounge and the Haunted Mansion and like the movie Clue. Wow. I have not yet been. Have you been? I have been. Yeah. Oh, I feel like everybody who goes, they, they just always are like, oh, yeah, I had to know somebody. I had to know somebody to get in. <laughs> you know, it's always one of those things. Yeah, it's like getting into a speakeasy. <laughs> like it's sort of a mark of, I don't know, like legitimacy or like mm. being on the inside to get in. Well, so in addition to this mystique that you were speaking about, um, Joining the Magic Castle, like as a magician, is also a pretty big milestone. I think we actually have um, a clip from your podcast that kind of gets into that as well. Why is the Magic Castle a big deal? Why is the Magic Castle a big deal? There isn't a PhD in magician. 
So when I'm auditioning for a television show, when I speak to a event planner in California, the first question I'm asked is, have you ever performed at the Magic Castle? Just to even have the ability to walk into the doors of the Magic Castle is a mark of one's ability to gain access into an exclusive magic space. You have all these magicians that have performed here. You have all this history. There's a library of all these books with secrets. The guy who made the Statue of Liberty disappear for David Copperfield, he's just sitting at the bar. All the people, all the tricks, all the stories, it all just exists in one place. It's this castle on the hill where magical things happen in the magical world of Hollywood, where celebrities go and people dress up and you can only go if you have an invitation. I mean, it certainly paints a picture. It does such a good job. And when I listened to the pod, my eyes kind of popped when Paul Draper, whose voice we heard there at the beginning, said, you know, there isn't a PhD in magician. Mm -hmm. I thought... Oh, yeah, you're right. Like, how do you know? Like, what's the real, like, seal of, oh, yeah, this guy's legit. And it's like, okay, yeah, I could see that. Magic Castle being uh, the thing that you'd look for on a resume and that would probably give them some legitimacy. Now, your series centers on one particular hobbyist magician, Carly Usdin, uh, who wants to become a part of this club. Uh, I loved kind of how you built the story around them. Uh, and and how they try it out for this club. What happens once they get inside? Yeah, so initially when Carly gets inside the castle, they're like head over heels in love with it. They figure out that they, they have this natural affinity towards card tricks. They love watching magic performances after class. They're just in love with every aspect of mm. it. But the more time they spend there, the more they start noticing things that feel unnerving. You know, various members have described the experience of stepping inside the castle as going back in time. And that can have its charms, but also, depending on your identity, that can have a lot right, of drawbacks, right. right? And Carly is queer. They now identify as trans and non-binary. Mm. And as they're in this space, they start noticing um, instances of sexism in the magic performance. They have these experiences of being misgendered. And they're also just feeling, they've described it as like an old boys club vibe in the castle. Mm. Um, the membership is overwhelmingly male. Pre-2020, they had this very strict gender dress code. And there's also stuff like there's an infamous spot at a bar underneath a staircase where if you look up, you could see up someone's skirt. And it's like a thing oh, that geez. members would talk about and female magicians would warn each other about. And so all of this stuff starts adding up and... Carly starts becoming kind of disillusioned with the space. Oh, my goodness. I, that's actually a bit troubling uh, just to hear that. Uh, I would also like to put it out, though, for AirTalk listeners, if you do uh, work in the magic space, if you've had any observations about uh, some of the dynamics at play there. I mean, we have heard this, this thought that it's an old boys club, that it doesn't really uh, evolve with the times very quickly. If you have any thoughts or experiences uh, on that, I'd love to hear from you. 866-893-5722 is our number. 866-893-5722. But let me put it to you, Natalie. Is it reflective, this boys club vibe that you're talking about? Is this reflective of the industry as a whole, you think? I think some magicians would definitely say so. Uh, over 90%, something like that, of professional magicians are male. 
And so it was really important for me to get the perspective of a professional woman in magic. So one of the other subjects of the series is Kayla Drescher. She's a professional magician. She worked at the castle as a performer and a teacher for many mm. years. And she told me that misogyny has always been a part of her life and career in magic ever mm. since she was like nine years old. And one of the reasons I initially got in touch with her is because she kept this unofficial spreadsheet uh, of how performers of different genders were booked throughout the castle. And so uh, between like 2016 and 2019, something like six to nine percent of the performers at the castle were women, mm. which is actually kind of proportionally reflective of the gender ratio in magic. Mm. But Kayla also found that women tended to get the less prestigious time slots and less prestigious venues within the castle. And also one kind of funny but sad tale is that she would, as a joke, keep track of magicians named David, Jeff, and John. Oh, wow. um, and in 2017, there were more magicians named John that performed at the castle than women in total. Um, so oh, she shared goodness. these, she shared this data with the castle leadership, and they told me that as a result, they've made an effort to book at least one woman a week at the castle. Hmm. So, and then on top of the sort of demographic issues, you have these pretty entrenched, like heterogender archetypes in magic that you're probably familiar with, like the all powerful male magician right. and his beautiful female assistant who is who the like, passive subject of torture on stage. Right, who he like cuts in half or throws knives at or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, that's it's, it's interesting. I I always wonder when it comes to industries like these, uh, if it's change has happened slowly because, you know, the people who are at the top just don't even really think that change needs to happen. Or if there's actually a deep seated belief that, you know, the way that we've done things is the best way to do things. And so why should we change it now? Period. Yeah. I mean, I think magic has a sort of a culture of secrecy around it like tricks get passed down from individual to an individual like a magician never reveals their secrets right mm. and then on top of that for the castle it's a members only club and it's sort of an insular exclusive space um, it's not like responding to market forces in the way a company does it its main obligation is to its members and so i was curious about how change happens in a space like that so we have this clip from a series uh, discussing uh, a particular uh, trick that was uh, unveiled in the early 20s, and it kind of added, it was almost like intentional misogyny to the magic. Let's listen to that one really quick. Eventually, every act in Las Vegas, Nevada, does some version of this trick, sawing a woman into halves. It's one that audiences recognize everywhere. It is sawing a woman in half. A magician who engineered illusions, P.T. Sulbit, specifically asked for women to be the first ones to participate in this illusion. This was very much a situation that would go forward in branding magic with very clear gender roles of the magician is a guy in a tux and a woman on stage is the individual who gets sawn in half, split apart, and lit on fire. Do you feel like you learned a lot as you were doing this? Because there's certain parts of life in general, but especially magic as I listen to this podcast, that I didn't really think about before. You grow up and it is the male magician, top hat wearing guy, sawing a woman in half. 
Uh, did doing any of this research at all make you really reconsider like this this reality, the, this performance that we've seen maybe time and time again throughout our lives and all the silent dynamics that are at play that we don't really talk about? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, um, you know, in magic, you there's the trick and then there's the stuff that you're saying that's supposed to be the misdirect for the audience. And mm. like that part of it, the patter can be anything. And so it's interesting what it has ended up being and also some of the history that's informed that. And it's always difficult to recognize like things that are feel very entrenched um, and to like pull out what those dynamics actually are and like where they came from. I imagine sometimes even the magicians themselves don't think about it either. This yeah, because you're modeling are. after performers that you really admire and you've seen this stuff and those performers have seen this stuff and it's all informed by kind of a long history. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about one more thing that I thought was really interesting. It was about how these gender dynamics are built into magic, the idea of magic itself. Uh, and when people, you know, present, you know, sometimes as female, they kind of come in with a bit of a disadvantage in that space because of the history of how we've thought about magic and women. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, are you curious about the history? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly, yes. That. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the magic historians I talked to, some of them started all the way back to like the witch burnings in the mm -hmm. 1600s. And we're talking about Western Europe and the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously, if you were a woman in the 1600s, it was a pretty bad idea to claim that you had magical abilities. And then if you fast forward to like the golden age of magic, this is late 1800s. This is like what you think of when you think magician with a top hat and coattails, like the prestige Houdini, that kind of stuff. So in that time period, it was actually pretty rare to see women on stage at all. Magicians were usually assisted by young boys. And mm. so in 1921, when P.T. Selbit popularized this trick, that's when you really saw women on stage in magic in a totally different way. And also some of those dynamics serve to... Uh, create the illusion like the assistant is actually doing a whole lot of stuff behind the scenes but mm. the more inept or like clueless um, or in peril that they seem the more it serves the actual trick which is to distract from what they're oh. doing in order for the often male magician to be able to pull off the trick so I mentioned that your story follows Carly, and I know we probably have to listen to find out what happens with Carly, but can you give us a sense of what we might expect going forward in the story? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff comes to a head in 2020 when the Magic Castles Hotel gives its parking lot to the LAPD and the National Guard to use as a staging area for the George Floyd, mm. during the George Floyd protests. Right. And there's kind of this big rupture and debate at the castle among members. And I think one of the thematic questions that comes up for all the different subjects of the series is whether to stay at a place that they feel like is problematic and to fight for change from within or to leave. And I think different characters make different choices. And I was interested in exploring the tolls that those decisions took. I look forward to following that story. That's Natalie Chudnovsky, LA's senior producer and the reporter of Imperfect Paradise, The Castle, the latest four-part series from LAist. Episode out today, right? Mm -hmm. Today. Exciting. Thank you so much for coming in, Natalie. Thanks, Austin.
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Bunuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Austin Cross with you in today for Larry Mantle. Our guy is back with you tomorrow. Decades of research have been dedicated to studying how motherhood impacts a woman's brain. But today, there's also a growing body of research looking at how fatherhood affects the dad's brain. A new study shows that quality one-on-one time spent with their newborn can actually alter a father's brain. And the result of this time spent with their baby is that fathers are often more effective caregivers. They maybe pick up on some of these subtle cues a bit more. Joining us to discuss this research is Darby Saxby, professor of psychology at USC, where she is director of the USC Center for the Changing Family. Welcome, Darby. Hello, happy to be here. Also with us, we have Josh Levs, author of All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, and I'm sorry that the subtitle of my book is so long. Oh, it's it's quite all right. It actually, it's very informative. It tells me exactly yes, what to expect. Uh, Darby, I want to start with you. I love how one of the articles I was reading to prep for this puts it. It says, it turns out daddies are made, not born. Just first of all, talk to me about what inspired you to do this research. Sure, yeah. So I uh, run a lab where we do neuroimaging and uh, have had a longitudinal study over the last seven years where we recruit couples expecting their first child and follow them across um, the postpartum period. And when I was planning this study, I noticed there is a really small kind of preliminary amount of research on mothers and transformations that occur for mothers when they become parents, but really very little about fathers. And I think fathers are a really interesting case for understanding plasticity and how the brain changes Mm. because they don't experience the hormonal events of pregnancy, but they are experiencing the demands of caregiving. So I think we can actually learn a lot from fathers because we can see how their relationship with the baby, how their caregiving experiences might actually shape their physiology, their brain and their hormones. I just found this so fascinating as I was reading it. So I understand you compared brain scans of fathers here in California to fathers in Spain. Why Spain? Yes, that is correct. So I did a Fulbright fellowship to Spain. I spent a semester in Barcelona, which was a great mm. excuse to eat a lot of tapas. Yes. And um, 
the other reason I chose Barcelona is because one of the only other research groups that has looked at the parenting brain prospectively, that is before and after someone becomes a parent, is uh, based in Barcelona and Madrid. And they had a scan study of mothers and they published a really landmark paper where they showed that mothers' brains actually lost gray matter volume across the transition to parenthood. Hmm. And that sounds like a bad thing, the idea that the brain would be shrinking, but their theory is that it might reflect kind of a streamlining or a consolidation of the brain to prepare for more effective caregiving. And um, they had a small sample of men who were partners of the women that they followed, and they hadn't done much to analyze that data. So Knowing that I was collecting father brain data in my lab at USC, I convinced them to let me collaborate with them. And so we pooled our data, the men from both countries, and we were able to have a bigger sample so that we could look at brain change in the males. And what did change was the regions connected in the brain to sustained attention. So... What does this mean exactly? Because I, what I'm getting from this is, you know, when the fathers get to spend more time with their kids, uh, they just naturally become more attentive. Maybe their brain kind of refocuses, reshifts uh, to this thing, to keeping this thing alive, to predicting what this child, I call it a thing, what this child needs, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So parenting is really demanding, right? It's a lot of repetitive time caring for an infant who doesn't talk, they can't tell you exactly what they need. Um, you have to, like you said, keep this little baby alive, and that that can be tough. So the parts of the brain that we saw changing in the fathers, um, we were excited to see were in a lot of the same regions that we saw the change in mothers. So it suggests that there really is this kind of parenting brain remodeling that's occurring, whether you're a mom or a dad. Um, the changes in the dads were a little less... Um, large in magnitude and they were more variable, which I think has to do with the fact that the dads weren't experiencing pregnancy. And there's also just a more variable range in terms of how much time dads are spending with their infants in those first few months. But that's exactly right. The regions that we saw change were regions that are linked with uh, thinking about other people's minds. So we call them the mentalizing network or social cognition region Hmm. and regions that are linked with sustained attention and, and that makes a lot of sense because those are some of the skills that you need to kind of, um, you know, be able to acquire as you are taking care of an infant. I know that this takes it a step forward a little bit, but is there any research on maybe how having that time, say a father does get a significant amount of leave time to be with their child, to bond with their child in the early weeks or months, uh, how that affects their relationship between father and child uh, as they continue to age. Yeah, so that is exactly what my lab is looking at right now. So we did look at whether fathers had uh, time off after the birth of their baby and how much time they were able to spend with their baby. And we are seeing some connections between that time with infants and um, some of the brain changes that we've been focused on. And then in terms of how that shapes the long-term parenting relationship or the child's well-being, there's a ton of evidence suggesting that engaged fathers are really beneficial to kids, um, you know, across the lifespan. And Mm. so 
I think to whatever extent we can promote that that really sort of critical time, those first few months after birth, um, for bonding, for caregiving, the more some of these skills and capacities can come online for dads. I mean, I just think that that's so. I'll tell you what what resonated with me about this, and we're gonna have to take a break in just a second. I, now, I don't have kids yet, but I recently, maybe within the past three years, became a dog dad, and. Uh, what I've been delighted to notice about myself is when I have learned or picked up things from this puppy that we raised from from birth. Maybe she do a little grunt, like a, and it's like, okay, I know that sh- the ball has probably rolled underneath the table. Like I, I just know that that's what that means. Or a quick little yelp means that our other dog is playing with her toy and she's jealous about it. And and I guess for me, that's a connection that I make because suddenly I realize that this thing that can't talk to me uh, can still communicate with me. And then we get along pretty well because it knows that uh, I understand uh, kind of what it's trying to get out of any particular moment. Um, and I'm wondering, is it anything similar to that where maybe a dad would pick up on, you know, if a baby you know, starts to you know, raise its eyebrow or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're describing is kind of like the, the roots of empathy, right? Like you're able to read your dog signals and then you can figure out what your dog needs, how to care for your dog. I think, you know, not only is that important when you're caring for a dog or for a baby, it's actually important to be a really fully functioning member of society, that sort of ability to um, kind of connect to how somebody else might be feeling and to learn um, to interpret the cues that they're giving you. Talking right now with Darby Saxby, professor of psychology at the University of Southern California and director of the USC Center for the Changing Family. She's been looking at uh, father's brains and just how different they are, California to Spain, when they get to spend uh, a sustained amount of time with their children. Also on the line, we have Josh Levs. We're going to talk to Josh Levs when we come back because our work culture doesn't exactly try to help out a lot of dads when it comes to those who want to spend time with their kids. Uh, but if you are a father, if you've been listening in, uh, and you got to spend a significant amount of time with your child uh, shortly after they were born. Uh, I would love to hear how you think that that's affected your relationship with your child. Maybe if you feel closer, 866-893-5722 is our number. 866-893-5722. We are back in 60 seconds. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3, Austin Cross, and today for Larry Mantle, we're talking about how paternity, how fatherhood could change the brains of fathers when they get to spend time being a caregiver, especially in those early days, weeks, and months of a child's life. We've been talking about it with Darby Saxby at USC's Center for the Changing Family, but I want to bring in Josh Levs, author of All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families, and Businesses, and How We Can fix it together. Josh, I think it's important to mention in this whole conversation that the United States does not have a national paid parental leave policy like the fathers in Spain that were a part of the study get to enjoy. Uh, What is available to fathers in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, look, we stand out in the entire world for not having a system in place for new parents to stay home with a child and put food on the table. 
for at least a block a week. Now, it's pretty much just us. Um, what is available, a lot of businesses, not all, do fall under FMLA. So you get some unpaid leave time. And individual states have been creating paid family leave plans, including California, which has been leading the way with this. And we need a national system for this. And, you know, here's where all this stuff ties together, this really interesting new research and these policies. The American structures were all built on this madman way of thinking hmm. that women stay home and men go to work. So why don't we have paid leave? Well, who needs paid leave? The man's supposed to work and bring home the money. Uh, who needs paid leave for women? The women are supposed to stay home while the man brings home the money. So what we need to do is change this whole paradigm. And every time we get a new piece of research that demonstrates that, of course, men are equally capable of caregiving, we take a very important step in the direction of demonstrating that real gender equality is the natural way to go. I mean, it's interesting that this was the way that things were built here. A lot of our conversations on AirTalk here are about systems that were made with a different world in mind than the one that we actually have. But in 2021, a proposal to pass a federal paid leave policy failed in the U.S. And so it's also fascinating to me that even recently, it was a real struggle uh, to get this passed. Uh, but I mean, I should mention part of your book title, How We Can Fix It Together. And I know we've got limited time left in this conversation, but sure. if you had to choose uh, a path forward, I don't know if it's the legislative route, maybe a state-by-state -state route, but what is a how we can fix it together, a way that we can maybe fix the system? Sure. Three things. Laws, policies, and stigmas. So we do need national paid family leave. Absolutely. And that needs to be structured as an insurance plan, as, as California's is. That's demonstrated to build gender equality. We need policies in workplaces. You know, part of why I, I spent 10 years on NPR, 10 at CNN, and then I had a big legal battle for fair parental leave. And so I showed that better policies are better business. So we need businesses to ensure that they have caregiving leave that's equal to men and women. And the biggest change is in the stigmas, the culture. And this is why it's so important to see studies like this and to understand the whole realm of studies. You know, we have imprinted images in our minds from the earliest days of our lives that women are naturally better caregivers. Women are, you know, moms no more, dads are buffoons. What do we really know about anything? Mm. As a result, we don't really raise boys who don't like babysitting for babies or right. doing the kinds of things of which you learn. Mm. So I say laws, policies, and stigmas are the three big factors that we need to focus on. And the more we change those, the further we get talking right now with Josh Levs. Uh, I asked listeners earlier, fathers uh, in particular, to give us a call if they'd like to share their experiences uh, when they took time off to raise their child. Zach has called us from Santa Monica. Zach, uh, we only have about a minute left or so to get this in, but if you could tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah, hi. Um, I was a career kindergarten teacher for 15 years until my wife and I had a child. Uh, she took maternity leave early on, and then I doubled that up with paternity leave soon after and pretty much retired at the end of that school year to become a wow. full-time dad with my son. And um, he's nine now, and I've seen that bond. I mean, the connection we have, my wife jokes about it. She's always saying, you're welcome <laughs> for the connection <laughs> we have. Um, because, you know, just his level of empathy, my level of empathy, I think, has always been there. And, uh you know, it's really driven my 
kind of paths career-wise with hmm. him, just like as a guide. So he and I have a really strong connection. Do you remember a particular moment? And again, I think we only have a few seconds to get this in, but I'm just so curious. Do you have a particular moment when you uh, were taking that time off to uh, spend time with your son where you thought, I don't want to go back. I don't, I don't want to do this again. I just want to stay here. Absolutely. It was those hikes we took and, you know, being able to look at nature through his lens uh, really connected with us. And we're lucky to live where we live here in Santa Monica. That really was the moment where I'm like, yeah, I want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> wow. Just incredible. That's Zach in Santa Monica. Zach, thank you so much for giving us a call and just really uh, adding uh, such an important voice to this conversation. Uh, Darby Saxby, I think I got about uh, 10 seconds left to get something in, but is there any part of the research when it comes to fathers and children that you still would like to learn more about? There's so much. This is just a really brand new exploratory area of research. We need more funding and we need to care about dads. Darby Saxby, professor of psychology at the University of Southern California and director of the USC Center for the Changing Family. We also heard from Josh Levs, author of All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families and Businesses, and How We Can Fix It Together. My thanks to you both for coming on today. This is Air Talk. I'm Austin Cross. In today for Larry Mantle. Larry is back with you tomorrow. Then, of course, I will join you this coming Friday, we're going to be taking a look at the uh, governor's debate between Governor Newsom and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That's going to be a very interesting conversation. You can look forward to that one. We're actually going to partner up with a public radio station in Florida for that one. So stay tuned. Otherwise, have a wonderful day. Take care. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.